Hi, everyone. So welcome. Uh, this next panel is going to be on alternative income generation, which is very topical. People are concerned about rising rates. People are concerned about the aging of the bull market, and we've sort of all been exposed to these, these messages. But we have a very good panel with us today with a lot of experience uh, to help us negotiate some of these issues. Um, I have Barry Nelson uh, from Advent, uh, expert on uh, convertible bonds. I've known for a long time and has taught me more about that subject uh, than I knew for sure. Uh, Evan Sertan from Conan Steers, uh, a REIT expert uh, who's going to give us a little bit of insight. Um, and down at the end, we have Ken Fincher uh, from First Trust Portfolios and Mike Taggart from Nuveen to help us round out some of the issues around data and some of the, the other uh, parts of building a portfolio. And so with that, I'll turn it over to Barry. Ah, good morning, everyone. Uh, really uh, happy to be here. I was born in this neighborhood, and I played in Central Park, and uh, this morning I get a chance to play here uh, again. Um, convertible securities, um, the pitch really is very simple. Uh, convertibles are a niche that's been around since uh, at least the 1830s. Uh, it's usually tech-oriented, growth-oriented. In the 1830s, it was... Uh, the newly invented steam railways, and convertibles are fixed income instruments, usually bonds, that can be converted into a fixed number of shares of common stock. What it amounts to is a way to participate in the equity market with a higher yield than equities, with less downside risk than equities, with less volatility than equities, stir it all together, and over the long term, the total return from convertibles is uh, essentially indistinguishable from that of common stocks, but it's achieved with much less downside and uh, much less volatility than investing in common stocks. It's a niche that most people don't use, and uh, it works very well. Enough for opening remarks? Pretty good. Um, Evan uh, is our next speaker, uh, and REITs is sort of his focus. Again, another alternative asset uh, for income generation, and one that's actually been in the news, and so I think these remarks are particularly timely. Uh, great. Thanks, Alex. Uh, yes, uh, so I work for Cohen and Steers. Uh, uh, Marty Cohen and Bob Steers uh, uh, founded the first real estate securities mutual fund over 30 years ago. So uh, our firm uh, has a rich history of innovation in this asset class. Uh, REITs, uh, real estate investment trusts, uh, by definition, uh, are required to pay 90%, at least 90% of their net income to, in, uh, to shareholders in the form of, of dividends. So there is a, a compelling uh, income component to an investment in this asset class. Uh, you know, if you look at the performance of US REITs just last year, uh, you'll see REITs delivered about a 5% return, total return, uh, significantly underperforming uh, the broad equity markets. But what you need to realize when you look at that 5% return is that there are, uh, or there were property types within that 5% that performed um, as well as 25%. Uh, that would be the, the data centers and some of the cell tower REITs, um, seeing outsized demand for for those sorts of assets. And there are other property types like uh, the malls and the shopping centers, for reasons I'm sure most of you can imagine, uh, that um, delivered negative total returns in 2017. So uh, a, an asset manager such as 
uh, such as us that can um, you know, choose the companies and the sectors that are most attractive uh, on, on both a growth and value basis uh, can add value, substantial value over the long term and Cohen and Steers has been able to do that. And then we're also gonna hear from Ken Fincher today. Uh, Ken actually, uh, unlike people like me, actually builds portfolios for clients for a living. And so actually having a practitioner's view is useful on panels like these. Uh, Ken, what's your opinion on, on the notion of alternative assets and using them to generate income in a portfolio? You know, it's interesting. When I started in this business some odd years ago, everything we did in the closed-end fund space, I started, from a pro I started from a product side, so dealing with bankers and trying to bring products to market. But everything we dealt with in the, in the modern closed-end fund space, I'm not talking about the general Americans and the source capitals, but everything probably late 80s and on, there had to be a natural coupon, a natural income coming off of it. So it really started, the, the modern era started really with municipals because it seemed like the most logical. And then, of course, we went into corporates uh, and a few other fixed income. You know, what Barry and Evan are talking about were sort of that first derivation. How do we get outside of really fixed income uh, and bring something that isn't, you know, it's neither fish nor fowl to the market? And one of the things the closed-end fund space did is they, or the, and they still do, is they try to turn everything into a bond, right? If you think about it, it's got to produce income. We've all been married to the fact that if it's a closed-end fund, what's your yield? I mean, when you walk into a banker's office, what's your yield? Because if you don't have yield, guess what? You don't have a deal. Uh, and so the closed-end fund space, from a, from a product development standpoint, we had to make everything look like a bond. Now, come full circle, we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner in that because everything, even with the first panel you've talked about, everything we've heard was, you know, hey, what's the income? We look at the discount, and if you don't have enough income, you're going to have a big discount, and that's value. Uh, I think we need to get beyond that. I, I love the alternative side of things, the fact that you can look at in almost any category, whether it be uh, converts or senior loans or preferreds, to find something different than just a straight bond. Uh, but we've really painted ourselves into that corner that it has to have income. We've, we've given up the capital appreciation game in the closed-end fund space. And I think from our first panel, that's why we are where we are today in terms of not being able to bring anything to market. Uh, and I understand the closed-end fund is an income vehicle, or at least it's been portrayed as an income vehicle. Uh, but things have to change a little bit in there. The fact you have alternatives who aren't, who may be paying above what their natural income levels are, just so they not only could get to market, but also can survive in the secondary market. Uh, it's a different world right now. And I think in terms of alternative income, great idea, but I think we have to get back to basics in regards to what we're doing in the closed-end fund space. I know I'm the heretic in the room right now, so I apologize for that, but I think it, we have to think pretty deep in terms of where this industry is going uh, really from now going forward. Okay, and then uh, Mike from Nuveen has actually done quite a bit of, uh, of research in terms of how to integrate some of these different asset classes and sort of make them part of a more contiguous whole and actually has some very interesting data to that end. And so, uh, Mike, if you could share some of that with the room. Uh, sure. So, hello, everybody. Good morning. Um, so one of the things that I do at Nuveen is I do a lot of research and do a lot of data and use a lot of data. And... I think anybody familiar with closed-end funds knows that they are typically, you know, 
volatile, more volatile than say, you know, a similarly invested mutual fund. And that's because, um, you know, obviously most of them are leveraged um, because they don't need to trade at NAV. So the price can bounce around way more than the underlying assets do. So, but what happens when you take, you know, my question for some time has been, you know, what would happen if you actually build a portfolio that was somehow optimized for income production and you took parts of that portfolio, then you then went ahead and took parts of that portfolio and substituted in closed end funds, you know, these volatile closed end funds. How much of that volatility would get diversified away? So we worked with our, so I did, way years ago when I was at Morningstar, I did something pretty elementary with this um, and it was pretty interesting. So, then I wrote an article about it and it's probably no longer available. So we had our quant team at Nuveen look into this and come up first with an optimized portfolio. Given to, you know, given today's market environment, looking out over 20 years, what kind of, you know, if you started with a stock, just a 50-50 stock, dividend paying stocks, you know, uh, core bond portfolio, and then you turned that into a multi-asset portfolio with, you know, equities, REITs, those sorts of things. What could you, what would happen to your income if you were to do that? And your income uh, goes, would, would have, so then what we said was, and this is typical of kind of when people do these studies, they say, they go back in time and they say, well, what if we would have implemented this 20 years ago, even though the portfolio was built today for the next 20 years? So we went back and we did that. And you, uh, the outcome would have been just by adding, you know, various asset classes, not, not even in closed end funds, you would have significantly improved not only the amount of income that you uh, would have that you could have generated, but in retirement, you know, as I'm sure we're all aware, risks change. So, you know, volatility, your principal uh, volatility is still a risk, but there are other risks like short or shortfall risk. So, you know, you need X amount of money every year to pay your bills, and how often does your income fall below that? There's a shortfall, right? That's bad. So, but just by adding these multi-assets, your shortfall risk would have decreased considerably. And so then we said, okay, so now we have 10 asset classes in this portfolio of various weightings. What if we just took the average um, returns and income returns and capital returns from the corresponding Morningstar closed-end fund category and put those in there at, say, 15% of the weighting? So, in other words, if an asset, if asset X had a 10% weighting in the portfolio, it would now have an 8.5 of that would be to an underlying index and 1.5% of that would be to the closed-end fund average. And what would happen to that? And we found that, again, income went up in, in the portfolio and your shortfall risk decreased even more significantly. Um, so the, then the big question is, well, what happens to risk? And what was really interesting is, even though the closed end, when we substituted in the closed end funds, it was, there was more volatile than just the multi-asset portfolio in general, it was still less, um, it was still more volatile than the, 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 the traditional portfolio of just stocks and core bonds. But the Sharpe ratio was still a lot higher. It was about 10% higher. So you were, so for the amount of risk you were taking on, you were more than, you were being paid for it more than you were in the traditional. Um, sense. And I mean, I think just the bigger picture is 
is people go around and they search for income, a lot of times they say, oh, well, that's, that, that, that security is too risky, or, or that wrapper, that whatever, is too risky, it's volatile. Closed-end funds, they use leverage, and they bounce around, whatever. And they fail to kind of take into consideration, well, how would this actually work within the context of a broader portfolio? So, you know, after, I have a few questions that have, that have sparked by this conversation, but we will open the floor up to questions after this, so if, if everyone wants to sort of get ready with those. Um, my first question is for Barry. Um, in terms of using convertibles in an income portfolio, some of the things that we hear uh, on my side are credit risks and the balance of, of, you know, how do investors who are reliant from income, how do they judge credit risk in a security and also using some of the equity option and, and some of the risks that come from there and the volatility that you get in converts, how does that adapt itself to an income portfolio? How should income investors think about those issues? Well, it's a way to get some higher total return. Frankly, it's a way to pick up some appreciation, uh, something that uh, Ken mentioned that is generally absent in fixed income, unless there's been a credit panic or surging interest rates or some other uh, bad situation. But uh, appreciation is typical in the convertible market because the stock market usually goes up and convertibles will go up uh, with uh, the stock market. Beyond that, as a fixed income strategy, convertibles do mean lower yield. There is no free lunch uh, bond of equivalent uh, quality of triple B or double B or single B or whatever. It's going to yield a lot less if it's a convertible than if it's a straight bond but it has this uh, upside uh, participation. Uh, in essence, the conversion right is an embedded option. Uh, Alex mentioned uh, optionality, and um, the embedded option gives us a little bit of upside sensitivity to rising volatility in the marketplace. That is that the value of that option goes up if the market is more volatile. Indeed, convertibles often perform very well in a more volatile market. Uh, the biggest factor, though, from a fixed income perspective is the fact that convertible securities usually go up in a period of rising treasury rates. Uh, that's because usually rising treasury rates are associated with a stronger economy. And that's a very significant diversification in a fixed income portfolio. Uh, my, my next question also to riff to, to build on that uh, for Ken, um, you know, you said that, that investors should consider, you know, pursuing gains. Not everything should be driven by income, both from the investor perspective and both from the closed end fund issuer perspective, that we should work our way away from only yield bearing strategies and things that are really focused on that to the exclusion of everything else. Um, what are some of the asset classes that you would like to sort of see greater representation either used by individual investors or for the closed-end fund community as a whole to try and round out uh, the slate of offerings that we have for people as they build their portfolios? You know, I think we have all the right offerings out there. If you think about it, we, we pretty much cover everything from emerging market equity uh, to Jeff talked earlier about U.S. equity on the equity side. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, what Barry was talking about, the beauty of the convert is the fact that it gives you that access. Uh, it sort of gives you that optionality in regards to, hey, what's going on in the equity market versus the fixed income market? If fixed income 
uh, yields are rising and the uh, fixed income market is getting a little soft, you can get involved with converts. It gives you a, it gives you a little downside protection in regards to that. So from Alex's standpoint, in terms of your question, we have everything out there. We've just turned everything into a bond. Uh, we don't have a lot of funds that are really total return centric. Uh, we try to manage portfolios as we tell our investors for total return. You don't need us for income. Uh, if you're investing in closed end funds, you can get income without us. It's not hard. But what we try to do is give you a better round trip. And we all talk about the volatility in the closed end fund space and how you manage through it. A lot of investors right now, when things start to get tough, you know, municipal bonds, first quarter, very tough market. A lot of people just get out. They move on. Uh, they just don't like the volatility. What you have to do is try to keep those people involved. You just have to try to manage it, defend that portfolio over the long period. So we have all the right tools out there. I would like to see a little bit more on the equity side that is really total return oriented. If you think about it, there's a few funds out there that you may be familiar with on the equity side that really kind of throw, you know, throw the whole income thing out the door. We're saying, hey, we're not just an income vehicle. One of my favorite examples is Source Capital. Uh, Source, S-O-R is the ticker, came out in 1968. You know, the fund I think came at about $12 a share. A couple years ago, Source, their, their manager retired, who had been the manager really through the whole uh, period of time that Source came to market. Their manager retired and they changed the strategy. So in terms of changing the strategy, what they said is, hey, look, we're going to pay out all our gains. They paid out over $33 in gains per share on the portfolio, and they reset the portfolio, I want to say, in the mid-30s, somewhere in the mid-30s. And that fund is now a little bit different strategy. But here's an example of a fund that had really a total return bent. If you think of anything from the, really the 90s almost till recently, what equity-based closed-end fund has that type of gain built into their portfolio? Now, that's not to say source didn't pay out income. It typically paid 4 to 4.5%, and you traded at a probably an 8 to 10, 12% discount. But the fact that you were able to garner, if you were an investor a couple years ago, $33 capital gain distribution, uh, is a little bit different than the equity portfolios we have now, which are all, you know, option overlay. You know, we could go back to the whole dividend capture strategies, which were wildly successful at the time when you brought them to market, uh, which really kind of blew up in 2008, 2009. And you don't have a lot out there. The more recent example, and again, a, another one I use, always like to use, is BlackRock offered a fund, which is really a science and technology fund, BST. Here a fund came at, I think it came at 20 uh, didn't have a whole lot of interest on the IPO, probably raised three or four hundred million dollars. And that fund now is trading, and this is just a few years back, that fund's trading at, you know, 33, 232, 33. Again, their income now is only about 4%, but when they came to market, they had to be probably in the mid to high single digits. Uh, the focus has been so much on income is we're giving up the potential. And who's taking that from us? Who's taking that potential total return? It's the ETF space. ETFs are three and a half billion, uh, three and a half trillion dollars, and most of them are really focused on total return, and not as much focused on income. And while we sit still at about 250 billion, and our IPO market, as I said earlier, as, as Doug mentioned, is on life support. I'll quote Doug: "It was on life support." So you know, I think what I'd like to see is a little bit more focus on the ability. Uh, to gather total return in the space uh, and not have funds that are so focused on income that I give up all my upside 
uh, if I buy one. When you say total return, you mean capital appreciation. Yeah. I mean, with a little bit of income, because they, I mean, they all have total return, right? But most of them just are turning that into cash flow or slash income. And well, most of the total return in equities is, yeah. you know, you, you give it up through right. option yeah. overwrite or something right. so you can produce an income. Right, exactly. Uh, my, my next question for, is for Evan. Um, and, and again, within the context of, of trying to sort of build portfolios and investors are looking out for different risks, um, the REIT market is a highly differentiated one. How does Conan Steers, um, how do you classify different subsectors of the REIT market when you're looking at credit risk, uh, economic cycle risk, interest rate risk, and some of these other things that might be a little bit more nuanced than just saying REITs as a whole. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you know, lease duration is a big part of that. You know, we are in a period of rising interest rates, but those rising interest rates are rising because economic growth is expanding. And when economic growth is expanding, uh, as a landlord, you want to be able to reprice your rents as fast as possible to capitalize on that growth. So property types that have uh, shorter lease durations than average are, uh, all things being equal, going to be some of the more attractive uh, property types. So uh, hotels is the best example because they can reprice their rents virtually every night. Apartments, uh, usually the leases in, those, in that asset class and that property type uh, tend to be about a year or two. Um, <clears throat> uh, Self-storage is another good example. Um, you know, uh, uh, up, up to a year or two for self-storage. Now, on the other end of that spectrum, you have healthcare REITs, whose uh, leases on average tend to be about a decade long or so. You have, um, you know, the triple net lease sector, uh, a retail-oriented sector where leases tend to be of that length as well. So uh, what you want to do in a period of rising economic growth is, is weight your portfolio uh, to economically sensitive property types like the hotels, like the apartments. In our portfolio right now, we have overweights to those sectors largely because um, that repricing effect is very strong right now. Interesting. Uh, and, and then my last question uh, is, is for Mike. And, and he, you talked a lot about uh, diversifying away and using different, different kinds of asset classes in the closed-end fund format and putting them into a portfolio um, to try and gain income and, and keep your eye on shortfall risk and things like that. Um, Broadly speaking, what kind of income levels did you find are sustainable? What What is, is there a risk, and I can tell you from my experience, I've sometimes gotten the feeling that people are pushing it too hard. They're looking for nines and tens and elevens, and they're trying to sort of justify withdrawal rates that are very, very difficult to maintain. What, what have you guys found in that area? So what we did was when we went to the quant team, we said, look, build us a, you know, an optimal income portfolio without, with a standard deviation that doesn't go above nine, like an expected standard deviation that wouldn't be above nine. The reason we chose nine um, was because in a um, historically a balanced portfolio of 50-50 stocks and bonds wouldn't have exceeded nine. Standard, de uh, not standard deviation, I guess it would be 0 .09, not nine standard deviations, obviously. And so, um, so that's what they did. And um, we wanted them, when we started, we didn't really know kind of what um, what kind of uh, yield this kind of portfolio would kick off. We were hoping it would uh, come up with like maybe five. Um, and what we found was it, it's closer to f uh, four. So if, if, if you had a million dollar portfolio and you said, now this is obviously before taxes, you would say, okay, I need $40,000. That would be a 4% yield. And if, when you do the multi-asset with closed end, 15% closed end fund, in there, and this is again Morningstar category average historically. 
Um, so it's not even like, you know, picking the best one in the category or, you know, the, that sort of thing, just the average. Um, we found that 94% of quarters in the last 20 years, you would have made more than 40,000, or it would have been $10,000 a quarter. So 94% um, so of the time, you would have eliminated your shortfall risk. Right, interesting. Um, we have about 15 minutes left for questions, so I'd like to open it up to anybody who's got one. I see here in the front. Uh, there's a mic right here. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you explain to me what leverage means in a closed-end fund? Ken, would you like to take that one? Sure. Uh, it, really, in the modern day, and I'll start with a pretty simple example, which is the municipal space, which is still the largest space in the closed-end. Uh, in many instances, well, after a fund is brought to market, and let's say your coupon is four, the portfolio is yielding four, the manager will go back, and it used to be, uh, what they would do is they would go back and they would have a second offering for preferred share. Now, obviously, since uh, the crisis, you can't really do preferred, muni preferreds or any of the preferred because that market all dried up. So the, what they will do then is they will go borrow. So let's say we raised $100 million. Uh, we want to leverage our portfolio 33% typically, which is what they would do. We're going to go out and we're going to raise an additional $50 million or we're going to go borrow $50 million at a short-term rate. So... The SIFMA rate is what, running? 170, 160. So running, let's just say 150, so just to simplify things. So we're going to go borrow at one and a half, and we're going to take those borrowings at 50 million, and we're going to invest them at the four. So we have $150 million portfolio invested at 4%. So what will happen for that shareholder, the common shareholder, the co while we're paying that one and a half percent for our borrowing, the common shareholder will see enhanced income from the borrowing because now you not only get the 4%, but they get the 2.5% off that other 50 million. So what they're gonna do is, and again, I top of my head, they're gonna say around 5% yield because they have a, there's a borrowing cost involved. So they're gonna get enhanced yield because of the leverage. But again, what happens is that increases their duration on the portfolio because now they have $150 million portfolio invested in bonds, but they have a, a debt obligation as well. So they have, increased duration. So it's not free. You get increased income, but you also get increased risk. And that's kind of a simple form of what leverage is done. So it's done a number of different ways now, whether it's through borrowings or it's through some type of uh, preferred share. Some of the equity funds have a more coupon-oriented listed traded preferred. But that's, in essence, the simplest form in terms of how what leverage means in closed-end funds. And most closed-end funds, at least in the fixed income side, are levered. There's a few that are not. And then it's more uh, diversified on the equity side of the portfolio. I think our next question is over here in the second row from Connie. First of all, thank you for an excellent uh, panel. Um, since we are talking about alternatives, uh, it has been for a long time, we talk about unconstrained income. So it's just to say we, there's a lot of uh, like border, border or to like uh, crossover. Um, number one, nothing was mentioned about BDC. I wonder what the panel th was thinking because uh, that's have income, of course. And the second one is, especially recently with the due diligence we've been doing, there are quite a lot of new trends in the real estate, either direct investment real estate or IITs, developing what's called the con convertible preferred 
um, based on private equities and paying anywhere from eight to nine to 10 percent uh, distributions. So I wonder uh, if Mike and uh, Evans or, you know, I mean, obviously for various well, uh, and, and then <laughs> Kev, Ken, your <laughs> thoughts about these other type of the alternatives that's happening a lot. Some are traded, some are not traded, but uh, it's doing quite well. Surprisingly, uh, in short years, they dub double, triple their AUM. I would uh, cite uh, one problem with both um, private convertibles and uh, BDCs that uh, we're capped in terms of how much exposure we can have uh, in a closed-end fund to private convertibles, which are regarded as illiquid instruments. This doesn't mean they won't have a superior total return, and they definitely have higher yields than uh, public convertibles, but uh, you know we're, we're constrained. Uh, we can't have a, more than a small amount of illiquid securities. Also, in terms of leverage, um, these issues really can't uh, support leverage because they're illiquid. So there's a bit of a problem uh, having material participation there. In BDCs, I think there's a similar problem because BDCs um, really resemble closed-end funds. It's different, but it's putting a management fee on top of a management fee, uh, investing in a BDC that has its own fees. And then, Evan, did you have something to add to that? I would say in terms of REITs, uh, we are committed, Conan Steers is committed to uh, investing in uh, only in publicly traded real estate securities. Part of the reason is that uh, we would argue that um, the private market and private vehicles um, do not afford you a proper illiquidity premium, uh, and, and private market returns are often um, smoothed over by uh, appraisal-based uh, accounting, uh, whereas um, you know, you're, you're priced daily with REITs, and uh, we, we do believe that that offers investors a lot more confidence in what they're getting. There's also a corporate governance component to, to that as well. Um, uh, you know, we, we are fans of the public markets because uh, because of the corporate governance demands uh, on, on management teams. And uh, we have found that um, the, the, the private market does not offer the same uh, confidence in corporate governance that, that the listed market does. You know, to add to what Evan's talking about as well, if you're going through a, if you're going to go to a banker uh, and you're trying to bring a deal to market, typically you're going to be limited or you're not going to be allowed to do anything that isn't, they can't price on a daily basis. Because you strike an NAV on a nightly basis for your portfolio. So typically, and it, we ran into this with senior loans back in the day. If you think back late 90s, there were no senior loan closed-end funds because why? Everything in the senior loan space was self-priced. So the portfolio manager priced their portfolio every night and when they went, ah, par. Uh, so you know, it, it didn't matter what was going on and a lot of people would use, if you recall, they would use senior loans almost like it's money market-esque. The NAV never changed. It's great because you've got a portfolio manager who's pricing his own portfolio. When you try to come to the bankers to bring a closed-end fund in the space, the first thing all the lawyers and even the bankers said is like, you got to have a third-party pricing. Someone has to price that security every night for you. So I think what Evan's talking about, because you don't get a public pricing, you don't get a pricing on a daily basis, that's much harder to put in a closed-end fund portfolio 
than you would think. So second, I think on your question on BDCs, a lot of people are trying to the mainstream BDCs into the, their closed-end fund. They're not, okay? That's my opinion. Yeah. They're just not. They're different. They are not a sector. They are not a strategy in the closed-end fund. They're different. They're not their traditional closed-end funds. My personal opinion. I don't think it's, I mean, I, people get confused because they're closed-end management companies under the 40 Act, and so they think, oh, well, they're a closed-end fund, and they're, and they're not. They're, they're kind of two separate tracks off of that closed-end management company. Exactly. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Yeah. Right over here in the front. Uh, the question was about the problems in the IPO market, and therefore, are people on this panel actively moving towards the non-listed approach or interval-type funds? Uh, I'm looking about alternatives to the IPO market and whether you see a lot of opportunities there. Okay. Um, anybody on the panel want to take that one? Uh, I, I work in publicly traded funds, and I'm not on the banking side, so it's hard for me to answer that. But um, does anybody else want to grab that? Now, I'm always willing to give my two cents. Yeah, there we go. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are a few of these privately that have been really in 2008, 2009, you saw a number of these privately or non-listed traded closed-end funds brought to market because we were in a crisis. Uh, and there was a short tie-up period for those. Uh, if you think back to, uh, you know, the, the private-public partnership funds that were brought in 08, 09, uh, in many instances, one of, the, one of the big objections to these private or these non-listed were the fact you have limited liquidity. For a retail investor, and, and closed-end funds are a retail product, that private is really more institutionally based or high net worth based, someone who's willing to tie themselves up for give it one, two, three, five years uh, and not have the ability to move in and out as frequently as they like. So, the space is interesting. You're, you're, you're getting some interest in there. We've seen some things done, uh, but it's typically not to the traditional closed-end fund buyer, that retail buyer. Okay, and I think we have time for one more, if there is. Yes, I see you in the back of there. I think um, one issue you brought up here is, uh, okay, Cohen and Steers, you don't invest in non-publicly traded equities or fixed income for your funds. However, what's going on in the publicly traded market is that we've seen a massive shrinkage in the number of companies available to, to trade in. Traditionally, a lot of the spaces such as chemical, forest products, you can go on and on and on, auto parts, et cetera, are being gobbled up through M&A activity. So, so much to the point that the Russell 5000 that we used to know now only has 3,460 stocks in it. So, are th is this shrinkage limiting your opportunities? I, I would say no. Uh, there are about 160 U.S. REITs in our investment universe. Um, you know, to the extent <clears throat> that these NAV discounts that we're seeing in the market, to the extent that they persist, and these companies or some of these companies get bought out by private equity firms or even other public companies, it will only provide a floor for valuation. It will only be a good thing for the public markets if these NAV discounts that we're witnessing in the market um, uh, get erased by that. 
you know, we continue to see IPO activity in the U.S. REIT market. We saw, we've seen a number of industrial companies come to market. Industrial is one of the hottest property sectors right now, given the proliferation of e-commerce and the demand on industrial and warehouse space from e-commerce. Um, we're, we're, we've seen already a number of IPOs just this year. Um, so I don't, I don't think that, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the rise and fall of the number of companies in our universe is necessarily a bad thing for, um, for our ability to extract value. Okay, and with that, I think uh, we will have time for one short question. We've got about a minute left on our time. <laughs> okay. I'd like to request some comment on ETF on the MLPs like AMZA or AMLP. I'd appreciate some elaboration on those two ETFs. Yeah, I think for the As panel, an alternative income resource. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Those are those are absolutely within the sort of the the the, the mandate of, of alternative income categories. But um, this panel is largely confined to closed end funds, and MLPs aren't aren't an area where I think we have anybody who sort of can comment for their firm. So um, I'd be willing to discuss that with you in in the lobby, but less on a on an official basis. And we do, yes, and there is an MLP panel as well in the afternoon, so there's, there's lots of places to answer that question. And there is a BDC panel as well. That's in the <laughs> afternoon at about 3 o'clock. Um, they aren't that, closed end funds. That's right. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Much appreciated. And thank you to all the participants.